0: The worst thing you can do is stall the airplane and pancake in go in you know pancake in from 80 feet and that's what kills you is the vertical drop just flew it into the ground no choice i had no time to do anything i just you know yelled today well we're going in
1: welcome back tracy curtis taylor is one of britain's most iconic aviation adventurers this is a story about three epic flights in a 1942 biplane across africa to england from England to Australia and then across the USA. From crawling from a mangled wreckage, rescuing her crew from a firing squad, and dealing with online attacks, this is the story of inspiration and adventure. And make sure you take advantage of the deal we've got going with AG1 who are supporting me to make this podcast and with my daily nutrition. I get my AG1 delivered monthly to me so it's super easy to lock into a daily habit. It's the convenience that really enticed me to give it a try. I take it every morning before my morning coffee so I know I'm doing something good for my body before I even start the day. Every scoop is packed with 75 vitamins, minerals, probiotics, And whole food sourced ingredients of high quality that gives me major benefits like gut and mood support, boosted energy, and even healthier looking skin, hair, and nails. And if you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1 and get a free one year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com forward slash Andy Rowe. That's drinkag1.com forward slash Andy Rowe. Hope you enjoy the episode. Tracy. thanks for coming on the show.
0: What a pleasure, Andy.
1: You've always been quite an adventurous person, but you didn't just jump in a plane and fly through Africa, though. You drove through Africa back in the day, didn't you?
0: (laughs) Well, actually, I was driven, put it that way. I joined an overland adventure from Johannesburg back to London back in 1982. Gosh, 40 years ago plus.
1: It was quite unstable back then. Well, it's unstable in places now, but there's a story about you getting into a truck riddled with bullets.
0: You know, the southbound truck had got held up in Bulawayo, and four of them, there were four guys on the trip, and they were murdered. So they were never found. Um, they released the driver and um, two of the girls, and we met them very traumatized in Joburg. So that was our truck. So our first pre-departure meeting was patching up the bullets in the truck, and actually, some of the people on our you know had booked to come on our trip, uh, you know, cancelled because of that. But you know, I was twenty, and I thought, what the hell. You know, I want to see Africa. So it didn't deter me.
1: So this truck had arrived from where it was going to take you. And you were going to get back in that truck and go with it from where it came from.
0: Well, we avoided Zimbabwe. It was, it was, you know, Zimbabwe was, you know, it's, it's a difficult country. So we just avoided that and came up through Zambia. So, yeah, we did change the route. But we had a couple of hairy moments on it. I mean, you know, we came very close to the Mozambique border. A huge suspension bridge and it was obviously a strategic point and the next minute all these guys in camouflage and machine guns come pouring out of the bushes and we're thinking oh my god this is it and i'm sitting on the top of the truck in a bikini so you know you're feeling just slightly vulnerable at this point yeah but um but they let us go yeah but africa is unpredictable you know you just simply never know
1: so how did the progression come to having the idea to fly across africa
0: that actually came from the film Out of Africa, and it came about through my obsession with Africa. I, I, it's always had this allure, I have to say, from reading uh, Wilbur Smith in my, in my teens. I was interested in the early African exploration, you know, Richard Burton and, and uh, Hanning Speak and all those wonderful stories. And, uh, but when I saw the film Out of Africa, which was in 1985... So I had just started to learn to fly then. And there was a scene in there with the gypsy moth flying the Rift Valley. And, of course, it's the culmination of the great love story between Karen Blixen and Dennis Finch Hatton. So it's a true story. But, of course, in the film it's Meryl Streep and Robert Redford. But what was transfixing for me was this flight in this yellow... I can't remember it was a, ti- a tiger moth, I think it was, mm. just tiptoeing over the Ngong Hills into the Rift Valley and then flying over the flamingos and over elephant. And and I just thought, my God, it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. And I thought that's exactly how I want my life to be. I ended up getting a Ryan Recruit, a 1941 lowing monoplane. And I had that based at the Shuttleworth Collection in Biggleswade. And that place is one of my favourite places on earth and that was the dream actually to have an airplane base there so shuttleworth is famous because it's it's probably the oldest flying collection of airplanes in the world this is one of the jewels of british aviation and this is really early stuff pre-world war one you know we have the 1911 blackburn monoplane that's the oldest flying airplane in england They've got an original Blerio there. They've got the World War I stuff, an SE-5A. I had an SE-5A replica in New Zealand. That was the first syndicate that I bought into. So I used to fly that. It was only a 9 replica. But I'd go up and do a few aerobatics and, you know, flew to the East Cape in it to an air show. So it was some really early epic flying. But to actually find myself based at Shuttleworth with these original aeroplanes working with a wonderful group of engineers and volunteers. And, and of course, the pilots were all military test pilots. So there was a, again, it was it was just the culture there at Shuttleworth.
1: Tell me about the Stearman.
0: Ah, uh, well, the Stearman, the love of my life, I have to say, Andy. Um, <laughs> I had always had a thing about Boeing Stearmans. And it's just because I love biplanes, big radial engines. Again, I'd flown the T-6, North American T-6 Harvard, which is the big you know 550 Pratt and Whitney engine so I love radial engines the Boeing Stearman it's really 90, it's really late 20s early 30s technology you know it's a biplane with all the the rigging and struts open cockpit flying they were designed as basic trainers so they trained thousands of pilots for World War II, World War 2 in these airplanes so you could literally drop them on the deck it's like something out of top gear you know they they had some pretty rough treatment by by young pilots back in the day, so they are one they're very strong aeroplanes, very rugged, very very versatile in terms of you know so they uh, uses as, as primary trainers, but after the war, they became the primary crop dusters in America. And this is the one that featured in the film North by Northwest or The English Patient. They're always Stearmans. They were used as wing-walking airplanes. It's a, it's a really versatile yeah. airplane. And of course, the Americans just had this, you know, this this approach standard airframe and you could bolt any any which kind of engine on it. I mean all radials, but 6 7 different kinds of engine. And although this was a an American military airplane, I had this done. I wanted it to look more period, more British. And a bit more feminine. So I had it done in sort of British racing green. It's a lovely kind of dark green with cream wings. So a civilian paint scheme on it. And then, of course, by the time I had all my sponsorship, it looked just fantastic. The Union Jack on the side. I had the Royal Navy, Royal Marines charity on it. I had, you know, obviously Boeing was down it. And my main sponsor was Artemis Investment. So it became the spirit of Artemis which, um, again, really carried the whole female ethos of the flight. And, mm. uh, and that was the start of it.
1: So let's go to Africa. Is it Cape Town where you start?
0: Well, the other side of this story. So I wanted to fly Africa. And somebody had asked me back in 2009, what would you most like to do? And without even hesitating, I just said, you know, I just love to fly Africa in a, in a biplane. And of course, that was really the seed of it. And from that point, I just thought I had this almost psychic sense that I would actually go and do this. But it took another four years to pull this together. So as well as finding the airplane, I was building a support crew, trying to find a film crew because the idea was to make a film about this. But not about me. I wanted to put this in the context of history. And during that same summer, I'd been given a book called Lady Icarus, which was about the wonderful Lady Heath. This was the first person to fly solo from Cape Town back to England. So in fact, we were following her flight. She was this brilliant aviator, mad as a fish, Irish, one of our first Olympic athletes. She was a dispatch rider in World War One. She was the first female to hold a commercial pilot's license in this country. She was the first woman to hold an engineering certificate. So she was a remarkable individual. So yeah, back in, back in 1928, she took an Avro avian to to Cape Town with her second husband which is where she got the title from that was Sir James Heath and uh, and she sets off and flies up Africa so we were following her flight but the idea was to sort of retell her story and give her her place in the sun
1: but you weren't flying solo were you?
0: Some of it I flew solo. You know, originally the plan was to fly it solo, but the whole thing just got bigger and bigger. You know, we had eight crew here and two aircraft. So as well as as my steerman, we had a Cessna caravan. We had a four-man film crew. We had uh, AWOL came along to do all the engineering support, and we had a, a logistics manager as well. And then as we were obviously filming the story, I was also meeting people as we went, you know, prominent women in aviation up Africa, um so we were building some interesting interviews and outreach around that. Um I would take people flying with me, the sponsors came and joined us in Kenya um to fly with me. So yeah, there was a lot of, you know, it was it was absolutely full on. This was a very mm. tight schedule getting this operation up Africa in in 2 months.
1: Because the story is bigger than just you flying through Africa. You're also doing outreach across the continent, weren't you?
0: Well, the experience of Africa really enabled me to then build an even bigger global outreach when it came to the Australian flight two years later. So by the time we realized the power of, of the flight, I, I really wanted to maximize how we could take this message across the world about the sort of um, the historic achievements of women in aviation. And that in the context, you know, back um You know, there was a global demand for three quarters of a million pilots and engineers. And women, of course, are completely underrepresented in the industry. Even today, there's only 5% of commercial pilots who are females. You know, women are underrepresented in both engineering and aviation. So what I was trying to do with the flights was to really, you know, using these astonishing pioneers like lady heath like amy johnson um was to to really you know hold up and highlight what they had done and take this message through schools girls schools colleges mentoring groups conferences so i had a huge kind of public program around the flights but really talking about the achievements of the pioneers and using these to to really inspire this next generation into aerospace and aviation
1: That's really cool so that was the whole basis of your trip, was to encourage women to get into aviation.
0: Absolutely. And, and to tell again the story. And of course, you know, the great thing is, you see, these pioneers in their day were flying the, 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 the kind of state-of-the-art sports planes back in the 1920s mm. and early 30s. But the irony is that here I am in the 21st century flying an aeroplane from that era. So I'm, I'm almost this anachronism already. And they probably would have thought I was mad flying that because they were sort of, you know, very progressive and pushing for all these new technologies. But my bliss is to fly the old aeroplanes. But taking an aeroplane like this, such distances, you know, around the world in this post 9-11 world, you know, what you're up against now, the bureaucracy, the security issues, the complicated airspace, the politics, the cost of doing this. So the logistics behind this is, is just enormous.
1: The first day out, of Cape Town just looked magical.
0: Well, you know, we had been there for two weeks. There'd been some horrific weather, you know, there in Cape Town. Um, you're, you're right on the end of the continent. There's two oceans converge there, and the weather can be violent. So we were two days late leaving. You know, there were strong easterly winds, heavy rain. So, again, there's the first problem. The weather is always the most challenging thing with doing this kind of flying. It's all visual flying. I have no instruments. I have to be able to see, you know, this is no night flying, I can't fly in cloud, I'm flying visually. So we were late starting, Um, I flew into horrific headwinds and turbulence, you know, you're in the lee of these mountains all the way along that east coast, and I got really knocked around in the first couple of hours of the flight, and I'm thinking, oh no, (laughs) this is a nightmare. What have I done? You know, they were just saying that all these photographers were positioned out along the mountain roads and I couldn't get near it because the downdrafts were just so violent that, you know, that you run the risk of of, of the plane just being <laughs> hurled into the ground. You don't have the, the power to outclimb the downdrafts. So yeah. I came up the coast and then I headed out to sea to try and find some smoother air. So I was, I was a good four or five miles off the coast over Whitecaps, you know, flying at, I suppose I was about 4,000 feet, but I was getting absolutely thrown around in this really hard edge turbulence. But as soon as I had rounded um, the, the, what was Cape Agalhus, uh, you know, things just, it, it was like different air. So I then dropped down to the beach and I was just flying along at 200 feet. And this is where I, in fact, lower, 50 feet. And this is where I came across a whole pod of whales, So it was the most extraordinary day. I I just, you know, it was fantastic.
1: So then you go in and land at Port Elizabeth. Big crowd, right?
0: Before I got to Port Elizabeth, there were all these, there was obviously miles of coastline, and I'd flown the wonderful wilderness coast up South Africa. But the approach into Port Elizabeth is just miles of beach and sand dunes. So I'm down at, again, about 30 feet, buzzing along. There's nothing out there, a few seabirds. And the next minute a helicopter pulls up alongside of me. It was like something out of Hawaii 50. And uh, literally it's just just off my right wing. and he stayed with me for a few minutes, and then he just tipped, you know, in salute and then powered off up the beach. And then I came in to land at Port Elizabeth, So this had been a really, really long day. I'd flown two legs into George to refuel and then on up to Port Elizabeth. So it was about a 500-mile day. So landed in the sunset, you know, came and did a low pass over the field and then dumbbelled back into land. And I was landing right back in the sun, you know, very low solar angle couldn't see a thing you can't you can't see over the nose of the airplane in this blinding sunset and just plonk the steerman on but it was just it was fantastic it was just so exhilarating and then a big crowd of people there but you get out of the cockpit and I was dying to go to the loo you know you my goggles had sort of embedded themselves into my face you know flattened hair and you get out with all With all this media attention, and of course you look dreadful. I can tell you you do get out feeling really rugged. I mean, you're sunburnt, you're dehydrated, you know all you want to do is just have a have a drink and go to the lavatory, and then you've got an hour of media, you know so there were times when I just thought, oh no, you know, could I just have five minutes with my with my makeup bag and you know, sort my hair out but uh, <laughs> so it's not as glamorous as it sounds. I can tell you,
1: and then you have to fly into Uganda, right.
0: Yeah. Just just to nice. the whole flight was was done up the east side of Africa. And it's important to note that this is all back in the day. This was all British Empire. So when Mary Heath was flying through here, you know, she had everywhere she landed, she was going into diplomatic receptions and there was engineering support and so on. We really had to have, um, you know, fuel Positioned for the airplane, we were carrying our own oil. You know, we had to carry all of our own tooling and spares, so we had to be self-sufficient. But yeah, so coming up the east side, um, again flying the great plains of the Serengeti and the and the um, the Masai Mara, past Kilimanjaro, and then into into sort of that central Africa. So into around Lake Victoria, into Uganda, and that's really where it started to change. It was very very militarized. It felt hostile. It, it, it didn't feel very pleasant.
1: And didn't you get into trouble there?
0: Yep, I had a little issue there with the air traffic control. Um, you know, coming into Entebbe, I was I was told to recircuit because there was an airliner coming in fast behind me. So I, I they gave me a, a left hand turn to recircuit um, behind that, and I just and I'm of course flying this visually, but I I did as I was told, orbited round and and sort of through a wide a wide circuit around the airfield over the the, the suburbs of the city. And I overflew what turned out to be the president's palace. So I'm having a a sort of nice aerial view of all this and and taking it in this wonderful neoclassical white mansion with pillars. And um, I then came into land, and and the next minute, as I touched down, they said, uh, you know, Report to the Tower, and as I, I taxied up to the Tower, I was surrounded by the military authorities, the military police, escorted up to the Tower. It was just deeply unpleasant, frankly. They I, I was sat down. I had Eyewald with me. The next minute, I'm handed a brochure which was the airliners flying into the uh, the Twin Towers, and it it took me sort of several seconds before the penny dropped. They were sort of suggesting that I had been <laughs> trying to. <laughs> trying to do some sort of attack on the presidential palace. And frankly, I just, I laughed out loud, which was probably the worst response. But I just said, you know, I said, have you seen my aeroplane? It's a wooden fabric biplane and I'm flying at about 85 miles an hour. You know, if you think that this constitutes a threat to the president, I said, that's just frankly ridiculous. But they kept me there for two hours and I wasn't sure what they wanted, whether it was money or, or, you know, but it was just deeply, uh, deeply um, unpleasant. You know, they they were threatening to impound the steerman And I just said, no, I said, don't touch the airplane. You know, arrest me. I'm the pilot if you have a problem with this. And I just said, I said, you know, when Lady Heath flew here in, in, in 1928, she had a wonderful time in Uganda it would be a very sad state of affairs if I couldn't report the same in 2013. Oh, good. You know, so if, if you want yeah. a diplomatic incident about this, by all means make one, but this is going to be embarrassing. You know, This is a historic flight up Africa. We really don't, you know, we're, 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 we don't need a problem.
1: Most people in that position would at- Absolutely, brick it! But you've gone in full guns blazing.
0: I know. I was frightened. Make no mistake about this. This, 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 uh, this chap was very, very intimidating and very unamused. He, he was very hostile. But as soon as they said they were going to impound the steerman, I'm afraid that absolutely got my blood up. You know, if you want to make an incident, believe me, I'm going to make an. You know, I'm going to make an incident over this. Um, but anyway, look, they they finally liberated us a couple of hours later. and uh, But it was a very sobering experience mm. because, you know, they can actually do what they like is the point. You're in their country. You're very vulnerable. They knew there was quite a lot of media behind the flight. Um, but it was not pleasant, I must admit. I was glad to get out of Uganda after that.
1: So then you get out of Uganda.
0: and um, Then we were straight into the sedan. So this was, wow. in fact, the most really the most dangerous part of the trip. And, you know, because there was still, as we were flying into the south of Sudan, up to Juba, again, it's a war zone. It's, it's just a very desperately poor country. Um, it looks almost derelict as you come through this. You know, there's a big United Nations presence and they were telling us, absolutely do not fly um, up to El Abid, which is going to be our entry point into the Sudan. They were advocating that, that we follow the Nile up to Khartoum. By the time we got to Egypt, we were asking ourselves some serious questions about whether we would take the flight through Libya. But we decided that given the security issues, we couldn't take that risk. So carried on up to Cairo. We came out through Crete and then on up the uh, Peloponnese Peninsula and then on through on through Europe to England. And I flew back to Goodwood on the 31st of December um, 2013, just in time
1: for the new year. Talk to me about that flight to England.
0: Well, it was it was all incredible, but you know, doing that dash across Europe—it's now the middle of winter. You know, this is open cockpit. It yeah, was freezing. All these airfields shut down. Trying to find fuel. No, it was it was a nightmare, frankly. Oh Just trying to push through. We, we had to again. Ewald came with me from Hungary back to England. Um, but no, we, we had to turn back on the weather in France. I then thought I was having an
1: engine failure. You had to land in a field with hay bales, didn't you?
0: It was hay bales actually on the runway at a, <laughs> at a, at a little airfield in the Ardennes called Charleville. And I thought, I can't believe this. I've just flown 10,000 miles of Africa and it's, I'm going to have an engine failure in France. I mean, crazy. But it was just, it was just, it was carburetor icing. So just the engine surged and I thought it was going to fail Fortunately, there was an airfield just a couple of miles. We put it down there, ran the engine, you know, for a while, and everything seemed to be normal. But, but it was unnerving. And then coming through, rain on the deck, turn back again. So just horrific weather in, in Europe. So right to the very point of touchdown in Goodwood, it, it just never stopped. The the pressure, the tension, the, you know, it was. It, was, it was, had its
1: moments, I can tell you. Was it nice flying into Goodwood though?
0: Yeah, it was pouring rain. It was pouring rain, and the instruction as I landed was be careful, it's wet, wet, wet. So it was just, you know, as I, as I, the first touchdown, there was a whole sheet of mud that went sort of up and hit the top wing, you know, so it was just completely waterlogged.
1: When you were flying home across the channel, I bet it felt incredible to see that coast of England.
0: It looks incredibly green, I must say. So there's always, there's always a, a great thrill. To see uh, to see England again, but Africa was was an arduous an arduous um, expedition for lots of reasons. there was a lot of conflict um, within the crew with, really? with, yes with one particular member um, and it just drained so much energy and, and the tension behind that and the pressure of the flying. I, I was actually exhausted by the end of all this, I have to say so
1: was it your logistics manager that was causing trouble with the group? we,
0: we made, we made a important. serious mistake. With, with this individual and it was just naivety on our part and and I, I should have put my foot down much earlier but you know once you start an expedition like this there's so much impetus and momentum behind it you can't just stop mid-flight and and change your crew you can't you're committed to this so um, but it was a real eye-opener for me and of course there was a whole aftermath to this too.
1: Logistics is such a massive part of an expedition isn't it?
0: Well it is and it's it's all it's all the sort of um you know, the behind the scenes stuff, it's the ground transport, it's the accommodation, it's the permits, it's the documentation, it's the fuel in position. And when you're under pressure and you've got a big crew like this, I mean, you know, eight of us, relatively big, but it's, it was quite complex. We're moving through so many different countries, um, filming permits, all the rest of it. So a lot of, there's a lot of moving parts to this. So things have to be in place in order for us to get through smoothly. But so often that was not the case. And it it just added a layer of complication and stress that, frankly, we didn't need.
1: You've mentioned your flight to Australia. Tell me a little bit about your inspiration for this trip, Amy Johnson.
0: Well, having done Africa, and Africa took four years to pull together, okay? So here I am, we've flown Africa...
1: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
0: Uh, I've got the best expeditionary aeroplane in the world. And I thought, you know, I was thinking of flying to India. So you've got to fly on, right? So I'm I'm sitting there with, with um, some of the, the people from Boeing. We were having a, a, a drink at the RAF club in Piccadilly. And they sort of said to me, so what next? And I said, well, I'm thinking of flying to um, India, you know, thinking of... of you know, the first Imperial Airways flights, the British Empire. Um, but I was also thinking of, of Australia vaguely. And funnily enough, one of the key people at Boeing said, why don't you fly through to Australia? And and it really crystallised at that point. And I thought, well, that's it then. I'll do Amy, Amy Johnson's flight. Amy Johnson was the first female to fly solo from England to Australia in 1930. So it just continued this theme of celebrating the pioneers. And, of course, with now Boeing on board again for the second time, the opportunity to build this into a much bigger outreach really presented itself. So, and, again, the British government got behind it with um, the Britain is Great campaign. They didn't put any money into it, but they were able to connect me diplomatically with all the embassies so uh, they, could, they could tune me into schools and right. colleges. And, and that's how we built it.
1: How did you get in with the Pakistan military?
0: Well, again, it was just one of those things, really. Um, At the big departure from Farnborough, um, Prince Michael of Kent um, came to Farnborough as part of the sort of, um, you know, send off, really. And he brought with him his cousin, Prince Nikolaus of Greece. And at Farnborough, Prince Nikolaus asked if he could come and fly a leg with me. And he was, had a very good friend who was also there um, from Pakistan who he'd been to school with. So they were all part of this delegation that arrived at Farnborough. So at the time, I thought, well, Pakistan was going to be a really difficult leg because of the security issues. Mm, of um, course. But, but because I had the prince with me, um, then I had a whole delegation from the Pakistan Air, um, Air Force come and meet me at the Dubai Air Show. So on one of the stops, I was there for a week in Dubai. Um, this delegation arrived from Pakistan to set up the logistics. So basically, I was now being invited and supported by the Pakistan Air Force, which was, (laughs) what a result.
1: That's a great result. What a
0: result, because literally, from the minute we entered, uh, you know, they they were with us the whole way. Everything was provided, on-ground security. You know, I was followed by (laughs) land rovers, alarms, armed escorts. And, of course, I picked up the prince in, in Gwadar, And flew with him across some of the most unbelievable terrain. It was the mountains of southern Balochistan where Amy Johnson had flown over. And she was terrified. She'd just never seen anything like this. Razor-sharp mountains. And, of course, if you have an engine failure there you're not going to survive. There's simply nowhere to land. So I had the prince with me and I was thinking, gosh, you know, this is, it's pretty gutsy actually for a member of the public, you know, a civilian to get into an airplane like this, but he was fantastic. He'd done a bit of flying himself. He's a photographer. So he was there with his camera in the front seat as we flew over these razor sharp mountains at low level. Spectacular terrain, and then and then up the coast to and into into Karachi, where we had literally a royal welcome. Thousands of people, m- m- media. The British ambassador was there, and this went on. This reception went on almost all night. So I was there at at the military air force base in Karachi, where Amy had been back in nineteen thirty. Um, I went to the Darwood Foundation School. Two thousand schoolgirls there. Who had made my flight? Obviously, their project for the month. They were dressed as airline pilots. They had biplanes in their hair, singing and dancing. I, it, I was completely overwhelmed by it. And this is in a country where, f- for girls to get an education, you, you, that's that's you know that's a a big deal in Pakistan. But that was the highlight of the trip for me. I, I, I had I had just didn't envisage anything on that scale, and it was just the most moving thing, really. So all of this has been captured for the film so uh, which is it's which is There is another film which I'm I'm just putting the finishing touches to now it's been a long haul but we are nearly there
1: So then you fly from Pakistan into India? India,
0: India, into India, across India India then. So India was really the the kind of the crown jewel of the flight. I mean, it was a big part of the British Empire. And then on from there, India, Bangladesh, down the Mekong River into Yangon. um, Did a lot of filming in Yangon where Amy had had one of her worst crashes. So we were able to find where she crashed back in 1930 you know, they did this massive. She crashed famously. She crashed at an engineering college. And she said later, she said, thank God it wasn't a dance school. Because all it was a British a British technical college, but all of the people there were able to repair her aeroplane over over the space of a week, put it all back together again, and then she flew off. So she that's where she really lost the chance to make it the world record, but she she still got to Australia in in nineteen days. So phenomenal, phenomenal achievement.
1: How long did it take you?
0: Our expedition was three months, twenty three countries, sixty two stops. So everywhere you go, this is. A bit of a logistical challenge, actually. Everywhere you land, even though they have no resources for an aeroplane like mine, they still charge you as if you'd been a Boeing 737. So the cost was absolutely eye-watering. And I must admit, by the time I got to Sydney, I thought, "I I I wouldn't do this again. The bureaucracy is mind-bending literally.
1: You got a bit unstuck with the bureaucracy in Indonesia didn't you?
0: Oh absolutely. In- Indonesia became became a nightmare. We were flying the leg from Semarang into into Bali and we were going to be we were getting into Bali for Christmas. We were hoping to have a couple of days off just to sort the airplanes and enjoy some downtime over Christmas. Um, but as we landed in Bali we were met by the military police and they accused the chase plane pilot, of flying through a restricted area he'd he'd flown over a military base and of course they were filming they you know the cameras etc and they were accusing them of, of actually spying you know over a military base what they managed to overlook was we actually had a signed authorized flight plan from the civilian air traffic controllers but we really got caught between the two So we were held there for a week as as these meetings, and and it was all deeply unpleasant. But it was serious. We were under sort of semi-arrest here, and they were not prepared to let the crew go. They wanted a full investigation into what had happened. And and in the end, I was able to fly on in the steerman with Ewald, but I had to leave the crew behind while this was sorted out. So they were detained, and, of course, that was our fuel. We were carrying uh, you know, barrels of fuel in the, the, the Pilatus, all our oil, our spares, all the luggage, the cameraman. So really the whole nature of the expedition changed at that point. So, of course, in Sydney, everybody was waiting for us, the sponsors, the media. I had to press on and leave the crew because there was, just no, there was nothing I could do. So, again, but we were hounded out of the country by the military forces in Indonesia. So we had several more stops flying along another thousand miles of, of, of Indonesia. And we were met by the military wherever we went. And they, they, were, they were awful, I have to say. It was terrifying. They were looking for cameras. They knew that we had a big filming camera with us that they were looking for. But we managed to hide that in the stearman. So they were paranoid about us filming anything. They've got a very sensitive military there. And, uh, and and that's what we got caught up with. But they were looking for this big filming camera. We had that stowed in the stem and hidden away. But they, they made it very, very difficult for us. And I was very, very anxious that we'd even get out of the country. But we managed to do that. The Australians were brilliant. They gave us permission to to land into Truscott, which was an old base during World War II, which was a a non-official entry point. So we were able to fly the shortest route across the Timor Sea into Australia. And then we had to fly 400 miles up to Darwin to go and process into, into the immigration properly. So it was fraught. The last couple of weeks were absolutely fraught. But flying in Australia was some of the best flying I'd ever done in my life. Because now, again, once you're in the desert, you can do what you like. You know, you can fly at any level. We're landing on dirt strips. We were filling the the Stearman with with, uh, motor fuel at this point because there was no (laughs) avgas. Yeah, you can. The engine will run on that. So we were doing that through Indonesia because we'd lost the fuel. That was with the chase plane. We were putting motor fuel in it to fly the Timor Sea.
1: Tell me about the old guy in Australia that you met in the desert.
0: Oh, well, this was in Australia. They were absolutely amazing. There was this was actually well through in a, a place called Oodnadatta. and we landed on the dirt strip, and he came out to meet us in a in a flatbed truck with a with a barrel of fuel on board. But he had the gas station in town, and he. He took us into town in his truck for a cold drink, and it was called the Pink Roadhouse. So the whole thing was in bubblegum pink. He was wearing a huge pink Stetson, a couple of pink kayaks out front, bearing in mind this is a desert. Okay. This is
1: the only building.
0: This is the only building for miles. It's a one it's a one horse <laughs> town with a main street. And he just he looked at this and he said, You know love, you could have landed on the main street, pulled her up to the pump. And I could believe it because there was no traffic. It looked like something in an American Western. But this is what the Aussies were like. They were fantastic. So yeah. up in the north of Australia, we were literally, we were in these remote Aboriginal settlements, um, Kilkaringi and Lajumanu. There was no fuel. We just, we would land. People would come and meet us. You know, there was there was one chap there who said, yeah, saw you on the news this morning, love. thought you might be needing a bit of fuel. So he was there with a jerry can of fuel waiting for it. So they were amazing. But it was like being back in the nineteen thirties. Buzzing strips, buzzing local towns, you know, it's and there's nothing out there. It's just desert. Miles and miles of desert.
1: And then you fly to Sydney.
0: Yep, on off down to the, the the um the southeast corner, down to Sydney. Had a great welcome there. But of course I was you know I was completely preoccupied with the situation back in Indonesia. So you know, during the entire flight I was I was in contact with the British ambassador, the American ambassador, Boeing, you know, Boeing were doing their damnedest to help us get the crew liberated. Um, So I, I'd only been in Sydney a couple of days, we managed to disassemble the steam and get that packed up to Seattle for the next flight to in America. But I was straight back to, to Indonesia to try and to try and get the crew liberated. How did that go? Well, I ended up going back to Indonesia twice, so it was complicated. But um but it was it was ultimately resolved and we got the crew flown out and we had to bring in another crew to get the aeroplane out.
1: There was a court martial, wasn't there?
0: Yep. They it was it was extraordinary. It was like a court martial. Yeah, but I had I I was there um on my own with 40 men in military uniforms and of course I had a translator. So uh, th- this was just part of their process, I suppose. What did you say? Well, at the end of all this, I, I did just say, um, I said, you know, I'm I'm appalled at how much resources and time and energy that's been put into this. You know, I can assure you that, you know, we were not here. This was a this was a, a following a historic flight from 1930. You know, we were not there to spy on Indonesia. You know, this has been a very very unfortunate um, episode. I said, I'm delighted it's been resolved. And, of course, I thank them. You know, it, it, loss of face is a big cultural issue in Indonesia. So I wasn't there to be um, insulting. But I did say, you know, it nearly ruined the expedition. I was there, you know, putting motor fuel in my aeroplane. And, and and one of them piped up and said, oh, we wouldn't let you do it again, Tracy. And, and I laughed and I said, well, no, I won't be trying to do it again, I can assure you.
1: Your next adventure was the US postal route. Lots of people have died doing that.
0: <laughs> well, they did when they started. You know, I was absolutely fascinated by the whole story of the early US airmail. I mean, bearing in mind it was the Pony Express, it was the stagecoaches, the Wells Fargo, you know, the whole evolution of how... The East Coast was connected to the West Coast. Capitalism, getting the checks across America, you know, that's that's what drove this. It wasn't passenger flights, but the early airmail, the priority was to get the mail across America. And Boeing played a big part of this. So, of course, for me, going back to America, it was a homecoming for the Stearman, taking it back to America, you know, so many years after it was built in 1942. It was the early history of Boeing because they were... They were part. They had the San Francisco to Chicago part of the airmail delivery, um, so it was a very important historical dimension to it. But these early airmail pilots. So this is this is this is after World War One. This is one of the first airmail services in the world. So all these young guys flying these um, World War One Curtis Jennys. So they were they were surplus from World War I, And this was the start of it. But, of course, this was a very perilous undertaking. The pressure to get the mail through, um, flying in, you know, all hours through the night with no, you know, there was none of the early navigation aids. This was all still visual flying. And the mortality rate was shocking. Of the the first 40 airmail pilots, 31 of them were killed. They jokingly called themselves the Suicide Club. But this was, you know, this was a whole new, and they knew it. They had this sense that they were at the beginning of this era, this new technology. This was, you know, the interwar period as, as all the air routes were opening up. But, but the irony is that yet you know, they weren't passenger routes; that it was to get the airmail through, and, and the passengers really came after that.
1: You almost met your maker there too, didn't you? Yes, I too
0: Australia. suffered a crash in... Uh, yeah, well, you know, here you go. It can happen any time. You can have an engine failure at any time in an old aeroplane or a modern aeroplane. And and it happened to me taking off from Winslow, Arizona. It was the high desert. So um, that was at 5,000 feet above mean sea level. With the temperature and pressure on the day, it was equivalent to taking off at 7,000 feet above mean sea level. So you're taking off with... You know, half your engine power. So I'd had the most amazing days flying through the Grand Canyon, through Lake Powell, which is which is um, a submerged valley, an eastern the eastern part of the Grand Canyon. Again, this Mars-like surface, yeah, red I cliffs, pinnacles, inky blue water, and then out to Monument Valley, which is all the you know all the wonderful. Tableland, really. You know, it's all—it's all that classic high western You know, mm. where you see these wonderful rock formations, plateaus, and rock formations, and, and so on. So, so that was the day we'd had. We, we went into Winslow to refuel for the final leg south into Phoenix, where I had a whole day of outreach. So it was just the final leg of the evening. So we we took off at five o'clock, again sluggishly climbing out because it was high density altitude. As I said, it was about seven thousand feet. And shortly after takeoff, the engine lost power, and it was enough. It was just under 300 RPM, and, and just it was enough to stop it flying at that altitude. If I'd taken off at sea level, there probably would have been enough power for me to just circuit round and, and land the aeroplane. It just ran out of power. So I'm only at 100 feet. There's nothing you can do. There were power lines ahead. I just put it gently into a, a turn to the left through 30 degrees and flew it into the ground. You know, the worst thing you can do with an engine failure um, after takeoff, because this is the most critical time. The worst thing you can do is stall the aeroplane and pancake in, go in, you know, pancake in from 80 feet. And that's what kills you is the vertical drop. So the main thing is to keep the aeroplane flying. So you just instinctively check forward, you know, and, and just flew it into the ground. No choice. I had no time to do anything. I just, you know, yelled at A, well we're going in. I'm sure he could see that, but it was, you know. And because you're sort of because I was so accustomed, I suppose, to flying this aeroplane so low, I can't say that the feeling was one of terror. I was so annoyed. I was so sort of angry. I was sort of shouting, you know, "My God, we're we going in!" But it was, and then of course it somersaulted. So it hit quite hard. Um, the right hand undercarriage leg was torn off as it hit a sage bush. So although it was kind of open desert, it's pitted with all these very rugged sage bushes. So I hit that on the right-hand side, it tore the right-hand undercarriage leg off and, and sent us into a kind of diagonal cartwheel, and then it ended right way up. I mean, it was this freakish kind of um, almost normality, except there's no undercarriage, the thing is bellied in, and of course it's destroyed, but the whole, the whole superstructure of the wings, you know, the double wooden wings that just absorbed the energy of the crash, and you're sort of sitting in the middle of that in, in the cockpit. So Aewald and I were completely unharmed. So we just jumped out. Um, the boys in, in the Cessna were filming overhead, so they were just circling. So I sort of waved to them to to let them know we were okay. Um, so but this is, on,
1: this is going to be on the film. <laughs> it is on the. Uh, what a promo! It is in the film.
0: Yeah, yeah. What so. a promo! So, so, no, no, so they w- saw that you're okay. Wrecked the steerman, wrecked the steerman, and uh, but because nobody was injured and it was pretty clear what had happened, they the um, the Federal Aviation Authority had the wreck taken down to Phoenix. They put clean fuel in it and got the engine running. So it was uh, it was contaminated fuel. The the, the whole carburetor was blocked. Um, so that was the cause of it all. That was the cause of the power loss. Um, so because nobody was injured, I was able to get the plane within two weeks. Had it airlifted, it was like a medical evacuation. I had the Stearman airlifted <laughs> back to Europe, back to Aewalds, your baby, Rare Bird Aviation in Hungary, and the boys rebuilt it in record time. So it was they just worked round the clock on it for the next six weeks, the- and I was flying it. I was flying it at the Farnborough Air Show at the end of that summer and that was Boeing centenary so it was really important that we were there.
1: What was the media response like when you had your crash?
0: Um, Yeah the media it was all over the media of course and and that was fine but what was really uh, distressing was that at this point my little logistics manager from Africa you know this uh, my you know the disgruntled logistics manager we i had i refused to give him any sort of endorsement after what had happened in africa and he then just chose to enact a whole private agenda you know weaponizing social media in the way these things are done and and really tapping into you know a deeply misogynistic element on social media and on various flying platforms so no it, it became a horrific attack which had some pretty awful consequences but the fact is there was always a bigger story. You know, people try. It's always the same, isn't it? You know, and this happened with the pioneers in history. You know, these uh, people will attempt to discredit, belittle, demean and mm. and so on, you know, and, and social media facilitates this. And a lot of this was done anonymously. And it was it was shocking, actually, what happened. But but uh...
1: one of the things you were being accused of was saying that you did all these adventures solo. But you made it quite clear in the documentary that. You were never doing it solo well
0: you know when I first was going to fly Africa I thought it would be a solo flight and that's before I really took on I mean I, I had no idea really what was involved you go into these things cold with, a, with an unbelievable amount of naivety so I thought initially I would but by the time it's all geared up you've got all this crew you've got responsibilities with with sponsors you, you're trying to Attract the media attention to highlight the, the 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 theme of the flight. You need to use all these things. So I thought that I'd fly it solo, but that changed pretty quickly. And when I, when I really understood some of the risks and and things that we were dealing with in Africa, I was really concerned at, at some of the failings actually that we were having to contend with. So th- there is this. It's there's real. There's very real risk associated with this, as as I found out. Um, so no. So this was a constructed narrative by a group of trolls. You know, this was a very deliberate attempt to discredit me. And and the evidence of this was, was two almost ridiculous things. You know, in one speech I'd done um, in Kent for raising funds for this Amy Johnson memorial. I had misspoken in a speech again it was a completely ad lib speech I was supposed to be doing a flying display for this for this little event because it was fogged in that day I jumped in the car at short notice and driven 2 hours to Kent rushed there was then invited to speak and rattled off and and, and said you know my solo flight you know Amy's solo flight and my solo flight a misspeak, but that was then. Of course, it was filmed because they were doing a little promotional film. I'd actually asked that the film be edited because it was wrong, and I didn't want to even mention that I was going to try and go on and fly to Australia because I hadn't even made the, the preparations for anything yet. So I, there was various misspeaks actually. So some of it they edited out, but they didn't edit out when I'd said, "Oh, you know, my solo flight up Africa," and that was used as, "Here she is. She's a fraud. She's a liar." and then one ambiguous caption on a on a slide at another at, at another talk that i gave so but again using the power of social media they can make all this nonsense go viral yeah. and this is to completely you know uh, you know in terms of the bigger concept of the flight and what we were doing here and bearing in mind too I'm being filmed. Almost everything I'm doing. I've got cameras all over mine. We've got air-to-air filming. We've got so if I was trying to con anybody, it was a pretty poor way of doing it. But, but you know, they were very uh, they were very clever with how they manipulated things. As I said, there was a a professional troll was on board with this who was based, uh, you know, offshore. It was horrific. A professional, a professional troll? A professional troll, no less. So <laughs> My it was pretty insidious, the whole thing. And, and that tapped into, you know, a, a, a few, a handful of, you know, a few misogynists out there who were just all too willing to believe that, you know, here was this woman, you know, who'd conned her sponsors, conned the media, conned everybody. I mean, it was an utter nightmare, but it was ridiculous. Mm. It's it was ridiculous, frankly, but it was, you know, I didn't need that. It was hard enough to do these things. It really was. Mm. Um, but it's, it's, it's typical. And, and, you know, you do come across this this belittling attitude and women in aviation in history have dealt with this throughout. So this was not unique. You know, they were dealing with it back. You know, funnily enough, we were talking about this earlier, Andy, you know, this whole culture of, of the, that, is, that is part of aviation, you know, and the fact that, as I said, only 5% of commercial pilots are women. You know, that, that's no accident that that statistic is so low. You know, the 20th century, even though it's this wonderful century of, of achievement in flight, you know, maybe that's one of the greatest achievements is the development of flight. You know, in 65 years from the point that the Wright brothers fly, 65 years later, we're on the moon. You know, this is what drove two, two world wars, you know, the technology of aviation, you know, but women were banned from most of it by a hostile military male establishment. And I think that's exactly some of what I was up against reflected that as well.
1: It's such a shame that people had to take that approach to the amazing things that you've been doing, not just with your flying, but also with your outreach program. Your book is called Bird. It's available wherever you can get your books. It does go into more detail on what you had to endure during your epic adventures and the aftermath that followed. Tracy, thank you so much for your time and coming on the show and telling us a few of your amazing stories today.
0: And it's been a huge pleasure. Thank you very much.
1: And thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do give it a rating and leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to.